Shall we bow our heads for prayer? Father in heaven, we come before you once again with open hearts and minds willing to hear your voice. We thank you, Father, for the gift of prophecy through which, throughout many, many ages, you have revealed your will to the human race. And as we study a little bit about prophets and their relationship to the sanctuary, we ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of coming before your throne in prayer. Thank you because, as a father, you listen to our prayers. And thank you because you have answered this prayer, because we have asked in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul compares the church to a body, a body that is composed of many members, with each member fulfilling its own specific and particular function. In the same way, as the body is one, but has many members, and those members fulfill different functions, so it is with the church. The church should be one, even though it's composed of many members, and each member has his or her own particular function and purpose within the body. Now, each part of the body has a spiritual meaning when it comes to the church. For example, the feet represent, according to the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, the act of going to preach the gospel. The gospel of peace. The mouth represents teaching. For example, when Jesus taught many times, the Bible says that he opened his mouth and taught in parables. So the mouth represents teaching. The hands, touch, represents kindness and caring of church members for others. Reach out and touch someone. This evening, we want to talk about one of those body parts and what it represents, symbolically speaking. We're referring to the eyes of the body. What do the eyes of the body represent when it comes to the church? Well, go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 9. Here we're going to read about the name that was given to prophets before they were called prophets. You see, they had an earlier name. It says there in 1 Samuel 9, verse 9, Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, Come, let us go to the seer, for he who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. Now, what do you see with? You see with your eyes. Notice also Isaiah 29 and verse 10. Isaiah 29 and verse 10. We have once again a reference to the eyes. It says, Therefore the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes 
namely the prophets. So what does it mean to close the eyes? It means that there's no prophetic voice. So it says, and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he has covered your heads, namely the seers. So notice that the eyes are identified with the prophetic gift. Perhaps this is the reason why in Proverbs 29 and verse 18, we are told that where there is no vision, the people perish. Notice once again the word vision when it refers to the prophetic gift. Now one of the defects of the end time church according to Revelation chapter 3 and verses 14 through 22, is the fact that the Laodicean church is blind. What must that mean that the Laodicean church is blind? Is it just possible that the church of Laodicea, God's last church, is blind because she refuses to listen to the prophetic gift that God has given her in these last days? How can we be certain that in these last days God has given the prophetic gift to his church? In our study today, we're going to notice that God raised up the gift of prophecy in these last days at the right time, with the right message, at the right place, and with the right people. Now, in this study, we are going to uh, take a look at several time prophecies, specifically five time prophecies. The first three of these prophecies are fulfilled in Old Testament times. The last two of these time prophecies are fulfilled in New Testament times. And we're going to take a look at all five to see if we can be certain that in these last days God has raised up in his church the gift of prophecy. Now, as we study these five time prophecies, three that were fulfilled in the Old Testament and two in the New, we need to understand the mode of operation of God, or the modus operandi. And so I'm going to share that with you. Because all of these five prophecies have the same common denominators. The first thing that God does is that he calls a prophet. And he imparts to that prophet a message. That message has to do with judgment. Now connected with the message of judgment is a time prophecy. A prophecy that has to do with a period of time. And when God raises up that prophet, the message that he gives to that prophet is not present truth for that day and age. In other words, even though God gives the message to that prophet, the message is not for his time or for her time. Now, the interesting thing is that when this time period comes to an end, when this time prophecy comes to an end or is about to come to an end, God raises up another prophet. And he imparts to that prophet the same message that he gave to the first prophet. It's a message of judgment. And God tells that prophet, the time period that I gave to the first prophet has been fulfilled or is about to be fulfilled. 
In other words, this second prophet makes the message of the first prophet present truth. And interestingly enough, each time that the prophet rises, the second prophet in the sequence rises, he draws out and leads a remnant, a faithful remnant for God. And so I'll repeat this mode of operation of God because it's very important. God calls a prophet. He gives a message to the prophet. It's a message of judgment. Connected with the message of judgment is a time prophecy. And that message is not present truth for the first prophet. At the end of the time period, God calls another prophet. It's a message of judgment, just like he gave the first prophet. This prophet says the time period has come to an end or is coming to an end. It's present truth for this day and age. And God draws out a remnant. Now, I must emphasize that these time prophecies have to do with the great events of salvation history. We're not dealing with measly events. We're going to notice that in this process that God follows, you have the great events of salvation history. We're going to notice, for example, that the first prophet that ever arose fits within this method that God uses. The global flood, the call of Abraham, the exodus of Israel from Egypt, the Babylonian captivity, the baptism and death of Christ, and the closing of probation for the Jewish nation, and the beginning of the final judgment in heaven on October 22, 1844. All of these critically important events in salvation history are included in this method that God uses to operate. Now let's begin with our first example. Who was the first prophet that the Bible mentions as a prophet? It was actually a man called Enoch. Go with me to Jude, verses 14 and 15. Jude 14 and 15, that's that little book right before the book of Revelation. And it says there, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. Notice, prophesied. So he must have been a prophet, right? Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints to execute what? Ah, it's a message of judgment. And all. To convict, now listen carefully, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I think uh, he wants to get across the point that these, this is dealing with ungodly people. The word is used continuously in, this, in these two verses that we find in Jude 14 and 15. So God gives this message to Enoch, the first prophet of the Bible, and it is a message of judgment. Now the question is, when was this message that God gave to Enoch fulfilled? The fact is that it was not fulfilled in the days of Enoch. It was not present truth for the days of Enoch that God was going to come to execute judgment. Actually, it is fulfilled in two specific Points of time. First of all, the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
but also in an event that prefigures and illustrates the second coming of Christ. Let's notice Matthew 24, verses 37 to 39. Matthew 24, verses 37 to 39. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So what two events are being compared here by Jesus? The destruction of the world by a flood and the destruction of the world at the second coming of Christ, right? Very, very clear. Verse 38, For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Two global judgments to punish the wickedness of man. The wickedness before the flood and the wickedness immediately preceding the second coming of Jesus Christ. So Enoch was actually prophesying two events. He was prophesying the ungodliness of society before the flood, which would bring the destruction of the flood, and he was also referring to the wickedness of the world immediately before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Was the world wicked in the days of Noah? Notice Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, and then we'll read verses 11 to 13, because we notice that Enoch prophesied about those who were ungodly and wicked. Now we're going to notice here, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, and then we'll read verses 11 through 13. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Does that sound like a description of the wickedness that God showed to Enoch, the first prophet? Absolutely. And so Enoch was referring to two great events where God would come to execute judgment. First of all, the global flood, where all the human race was wiped out except for a remnant of eight, and the final destruction of the world for its wickedness, where there, was, there will be a small remnant compared to the number of people that live on planet Earth. So God gave Enoch this message, and it was a message of judgment. Now you're probably wondering where the time prophecy is. Is there a time prophecy connected with this message that God gave to Enoch? The answer is yes. But you have to look beneath the surface of Scripture in order to find it. Now, in the book of Genesis, over 75 times, God emphasizes the importance of names. You see, in Genesis, names aren't simply given because they're names. The names have very important meanings and significance. For example, Jacob means supplanter. Is that what he did? Sure, he supplanted his brother, right? But then when he fought with the, with the angel and prevailed, his name was changed to what? Israel. 
Prince of God. You have this time and again in the book of Genesis. Over 75 times the importance of names is underlined. And so, we come to the name of the son of Enoch. What was the name of the son of Enoch? Let's go to Genesis chapter 9 and verse 21. Genesis chapter 5, excuse me, and verse 21. Genesis 5, 21. It says here, Enoch lived 65 years and begot whom? Methuselah. That's an interesting name. It is composed of two Hebrew words. One is mut and the other is shalach. Now, let me give you the references in Strong's Concordance because people write emails and call all the time to ask me how I get the meaning of the name Methuselah. Uh, If you want to look up the word moot, in Strong's Concordance, it's number 4191. And if you want to look up the word shalach, it's in Strong's number 7971. Now, what does the word moot mean? It means to die. And what does the name Shalach mean? It means to send. So in other words, the combination of these two Hebrew words in the name of Methuselah mean when he dies, it will be sent. That's a strange name to call your son. When he dies, it will be sent. Immediately the question comes up, when he dies, what will be sent? The answer is very simple. When he dies, the flood of which God spoke to Enoch that he would come in judgment would take place. Now, interestingly enough, Jewish tradition, very ancient Jewish traditions say that Methuselah died ten days before the flood. Now, I can't prove that Methuselah died ten days before the flood, and we can't rely on everything the Jewish tradition says. But I can prove to you that Methuselah died the year of the flood. When he dies, it will be sent. You say, how do you prove that? Well, let me give you succinctly how we prove it. Let's do a little bit of math. Genesis 5 verse 22 tells us, and you need to do a little figuring here. Genesis 5:22 tells us that from the time that Methuselah was born... Till the time that his son Lamech was born, there was a period of 187 years that transpired. Okay? From the time Methuselah was born till the time that his son Lamech was born. 187 years. From the time that Lamech was born until the time that Noah was born was 182 years, according to Genesis 5 verse 28. And then the Bible tells us, in Genesis 7, verse 11, that Noah, after he was born, lived 600 years, and the flood came. So what do we do? We add 187, plus 182, plus 600, and then we'll know what year the flood came. Now, what do you get when you add all these figures together? You get 900 and what? 
969. From the time that Methuselah was born till the time that Methuselah died, there were 969 years. Interesting. The Bible says this. Genesis 5 verse 27 says, So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he what? And he died. When did Methuselah die? He died the year of the flood. In other words, his name means when he dies, it will be sent. And when Methuselah died, the flood was sent. So the name Methuselah was a time prophecy that announced when the judgment was going to take place of which God spoke to the prophet Enoch. Are you with me? Now, at the end of this period, when it was about to end, did God raise up another prophet that raised the, raised the same issues as had been raised by Enoch? Absolutely. What was his name? His name was Noah. Did Noah make the message of Enoch present truth for his day and age? Did Noah say, listen folks, now what Enoch spoke about is going to take place in this generation. 120 years of probation. Notice 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, speaking about Noah. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. It says here, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of what? Of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the what? Ungodly. Is that one of the, is that the word that was used repeatedly in the message that was given to Enoch? Absolutely. Notice Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7. Hebrews 11, verse 7. It says here, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he what? See, here's the judgment that was prophesied by Enoch, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So did God give Noah the same message that he gave to Enoch? Most certainly. Did Noah make Enoch's message present truth for his day and age? Absolutely. Was it a message of judgment? Was it at the end of this time period that scripture speaks about? Absolutely. Did Noah also, through his leadership, save a remnant from destruction and draw them out? Absolutely. Eight persons. So this is the first example from Scripture of God's modus operandi when it comes to time prophecies and prophets. Now let's go to our second example. Go with me to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20. And in a moment we're going to read verse 7. The Bible tells us that Abraham went to the city of Gerar. And there uh, lived a king called Abimelech. And it appears that Sarah, Abraham's wife, was a very beautiful woman, even though she was up in years at this time. 
And so Abraham says, you know, if I go and I tell Abimelech that she is my wife, he's going to kill me to take my wife. So he says to Sarah, tell Abimelech that you are my sister, which was a half-truth, but a half-truth is a full lie. He told him the truth, but not the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Fortunately, that evening, God gave Abimelech a dream, which is recorded in, the story is recorded in Genesis 20 and verse 7. Notice what it says. Now, therefore, God is giving the message to Abimelech. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a what? We don't usually think of Abraham as a prophet, but Abraham was a prophet. So it says he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So here we have Abraham, who according to the Bible was a prophet. Now, did God give uh, Abraham a message of judgment linked with a time prophecy? He most certainly did. Go with me to Genesis chapter 15 and verses 13 and 14. Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. Here is a message of judgment that God gives to Abraham, and it is linked with judgment. It says there, Then he said to Abram, God is speaking, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them, how long? 400 years. Is that a time prophecy? It most certainly is. 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will what? Ah, when the 400 years come to an end, what is God going to come? He's going to come in what? In judgment. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So did God give Abraham a message of judgment linked with a time prophecy? He most certainly did. Was this message present truth for the days of Abraham? Absolutely not. Notice Genesis 15, verses 15 and 16. Genesis 15, verses 15 and 16. Here, God says to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation... They shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So was this prophecy for a distant period of the future? It most certainly was. God gave the message of judgment to Abraham. It was linked with a time prophecy, but that message was not for the days of Abraham. Let me ask you, at the end of this period, as it was nearing an end, did God raise up another prophet to make the message of Abraham present truth? What was the name of that prophet? The name of that prophet was Moses. Go with me to Exodus chapter 12 and verses 40 and 41. Did God come in judgment in the days of Moses upon that nation that had afflicted Israel? Was the message of Abraham fulfilled? And were God's people delivered? They most certainly were. Exodus 12, verses 40 and 41. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass 
at the end of the 430 years, you're saying, well, that says 430, and before it said 400. One has to do with the time in which Abraham was called to leave his home to go to Canaan. The other time is when he actually entered Canaan, but we won't get into that right now. Now, notice what it says. On that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Did Moses make the message of Abraham present truth? He most certainly did. Did Moses bring judgment after judgment through the power of God upon Egyptian civilization? He most certainly did. Just as had been prophesied by Abraham. And so, did he make the message present truth? Yes. Did he lead out a remnant? What was the remnant? It was God's people. He led them out on their pilgrimage to the land of Canaan. Some of you might be wondering whether Moses was a prophet. The Bible says so. Notice Hosea chapter 12 and verse 13. We usually don't think of Moses as a prophet, but Moses was a prophet. Hosea chapter 12 and verse 13. It says, by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. And by a prophet, he was preserved. So we notice in our second example that is fulfilled in the Old Testament, once again, God operates in the same way. He calls a prophet. He gives him a message. Connected with the message is a time prophecy. It's a, it's a message of judgment, and it's not for the time that, of, of that prophet. Then at the end, God calls another prophet, gives him the same message of judgment, and he says the time prophecy has now come to an end, and he leads out a remnant. Now let's go to our third example that is fulfilled in the Old Testament. Would you agree that Jeremiah was a prophet? Let me just give you the reference. We won't read it. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. God says, I called you to be a prophet from the time that you were in your mother's womb. Now, did God give Jeremiah a message of judgment connected with the time prophecy? He most certainly did. Notice Jeremiah chapter 25 and verses 11 and 12. Jeremiah chapter 25 and verses 11 and 12. It says here, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. Speaking about the land of Judah. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon how long? Seventy years. Is that a time prophecy? Absolutely. Now what's going to happen after the seventy years? Continue saying, Then it will come to pass, when seventy years are completed, that I will what? Ah, there you have the judgment again. I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So did God give Jeremiah, the prophet, a message? He certainly did. Was it a message of judgment? Absolutely. Was it connected with a time prophecy? Certainly. Was this message for the days of Jeremiah? No. Jeremiah died long before this time period came to an end. This prophecy was not fulfilled in the days of Jeremiah. Question. Did God at the end of this period raise up another prophet to make the message that God had given to Jeremiah present truth at the end of the 70 years? Absolutely. What was the name of that prophet? 
It was the prophet Daniel. That's right. Who made the message of Jeremiah present truth for that day and age. Let's read about it in Scripture. Daniel chapter 9 and verses 1 and 2. Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, by the way, this is immediately after Babylon has fallen, it says, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish, how long? Seventy years in the desolations of Jerusalem. What prophecy was Daniel studying? He was studying the prophecy of the 70 years of Jeremiah because that prophecy was about to come to what? Was about to come to an end. Babylon fell in 539 and the decree for God's people to go back was to be given in the year 536. Ellen White describes a very interesting encounter between Daniel and Cyrus the Great. You know, Cyrus was, uh, was also with Darius when the city of Babylon fell. And she says that when Cyrus entered the city, Daniel, who was at the banquet hall, remember we talked about that? He was in the banquet hall where they used the holy vessels. Uh, Daniel met Cyrus. And he said, hey, Cyrus, come here. Did you know that a hundred years, over a hundred years before you were born, your name is mentioned in the scriptures? And he showed him Isaiah 45, verse 1, written over a hundred years before, with the name of Cyrus, saying, Cyrus shall deliver my people and give the command for them to go and to build the temple. And Daniel says, you are the man. Your name is Cyrus, right? God has called you to give that decree. And just less than two years later, Cyrus gave the decree for God's people to go back. So let me ask you, does this follow the same pattern as the first two examples? Absolutely. God calls a prophet. He gives that prophet a message. It's a message of judgment. It's not present truth for that day and age. Connected with it is a time prophecy. At the end of the period, God calls another prophet, gives him the same message. It's a message of judgment. The time period is now coming to an end. It's present truth. Did Daniel lead in a remnant leaving Babylon and going back to their land? Yes. Israel went out of captivity just the way that God had said was going to happen. Now let's go to an example that was fulfilled in the New Testament. Now the prophecy was given in the Old Testament. But the events prophesied were fulfilled in the New Testament. The prophet Daniel gave a prophecy which we've already studied in this seminar. It's the prophecy of the 70 weeks. You remember that prophecy that we studied, the prophecy of the 70 weeks? There are three great events in the prophecy of the 70 weeks, if you remember. Particularly the last week of the 70 weeks. Let's read about it and then we'll review what those three main points are. Notice Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. This is what the angel is telling, to, telling Daniel. 
There's 70 weeks determined or cut off for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And then verse 25, we'll read all the way through verse 27. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. Do you remember that we studied that Messiah means what? Anointed. Right? So the first great event in this prophecy is the anointing of the Messiah. So it says, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after the sixty-two weeks, here comes the second great event. Messiah shall be what? Cut off. That's the death of Christ. But not for himself. And the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the wars desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, this is the same prince, this is the Messiah. In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Did Jesus do that literally the day in which he died? We studied that, right? So the first event is the baptism. The second event is the death. And what is the third event? The close of probation for the Jewish nation, which leads to what? To the destruction of Jerusalem. Notice what the following verse says. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. And who was it that came to Jerusalem and destroyed Jerusalem because of the rejection of the Messiah? It was Rome, specifically the armies of Titus. So three great events. Number one, the anointing of the Messiah. Number two, the death of the Messiah. And number three, the close of probation for the Hebrew theocracy. Now let me ask you, at the end of this period, actually during the last week of this time period, did God call another prophet to make this message of Daniel present truth for his day and age? Did he? Of course he did. What was the name of that prophet? The name of that prophet was John the Baptist. When did, when did Jesus, when was Jesus anointed? We studied this, remember? When was Jesus anointed to be the Messiah? At the moment of his baptism. Let me review here. You remember that in Luke 4, verse 16, Jesus begins his ministry in Nazareth and he says, The Lord has anointed me. This is immediately after his baptism. When Jesus was baptized, what fell upon him? The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descended upon Christ. And when you go to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 and verse 39, it says that God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit. And so the anointing of Jesus took place at the moment of his baptism when he received the Holy Spirit. So did John address, did John the Baptist address the issue of the anointing of the Messiah? Yes, he was involved in the anointing of the Messiah. Well, let me ask you another question. How did John the Baptist introduce Christ? He said, behold what? The Lamb of God who takes away 
the sin of the world. What happened to lambs in the sanctuary service? Lambs were killed in the sanctuary service. Did Jesus die on the cross as the Lamb of God? Was he the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world? John the Baptist didn't understand all of the implications of this. But when he introduced Jesus as the Lamb, he was saying, He is going to what? He is going to die. So did John the Baptist announce, even though he didn't understand it, the death of Jesus Christ? He most certainly did. Did John the Baptist also warn the Jewish nation that if they didn't shape up, that their probation would close? Notice Matthew chapter 3 and verses 7 through 12. This is an extensive passage, but I'm going to read the whole thing. Because John the Baptist proclaimed a message of judgment. Incidentally, was the death of Jesus Christ on the cross a judgment? Ooh, it was a judgment of the devil and it was a judgment against sin. Isn't that right? Now, did John the Baptist also proclaim a word of judgment about the Jewish nation if they rejected the Messiah and they did not bear fruit? Absolutely. Notice what we find in Matthew 3, verses 7 through 12. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, the same name that Jesus gave to them in Matthew 23, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear what? Very important. Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Is he warning them that just because they're children of Abraham, literally speaking, that they don't have the special favor of God? Absolutely. Is he saying, bear fruit? Absolutely. Now notice. It continues saying, and even now the axe is laid at the root of the what? Oh, so now he's going to compare, he's going to compare the, the Jewish nation to a what? To a tree. Interesting. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit, what would happen? Is cut down and thrown into the fire. What did that tree represent according to the context? It represented the Jewish nation. What happened to Jerusalem in the year 70? It was burned. Just like John the Baptist said. And then he says, Indeed, I baptize you with water into, unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And now notice the message of judgment. His winnowing fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will what? He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Is this a message of judgment that God is going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous? Those who produce fruit and those who don't produce fruit? Absolutely. And notice that he compares the Hebrew nation with a tree. And if the tree does not produce fruit, it's cut down and thrown into the fire. Do we meet this tree later on in the ministry of Christ? Yes, we do. During the last week of his life. Notice Matthew chapter 21 and verse 19. Matthew chapter 21 and verse 19. And I wish we had time to go to Luke chapter 13, but we just don't have the time to go there. That's a whole sermon in itself. So let's go to the last week. Matthew 21 verse 19. Remember, John the Baptist said, that the tree needs to produce fruit. If it doesn't produce fruit, it's cut down and it's thrown into the fire. 
Matthew 21, 19, And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but what? But leaves only. And said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. Everybody agrees that the fig tree represents the Jewish nation. Even dispensationalist scholars, futurist scholars, believe that the fig tree represents Israel. But now I want you to notice something very interesting. Mark 11, 20 and 21. He cursed the fig tree, and Mark tells us in chapter 11, verses 20 and 21, Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. What happens when a tree dries up by the roots? That is it. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So let me ask you, did John the Baptist make the message of the 70 weeks present truth, particularly the last three events in the last week? Absolutely. He was the one who baptized the Messiah when the Messiah was anointed. He was the one who announced that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he announced that if the Jewish nation did not bear fruit, it would be cut down and thrown into the fire, which is exactly what happened in the year 70. The Jewish nation was destroyed and Jerusalem was burnt with what? Was burnt with fire. Now, let me ask you, did John the Baptist, through his work, bring out a remnant? Yes, he did. Do you know, most of the disciples of Jesus had previously been the disciples of John the Baptist. I don't know whether you were aware of that or not. And those disciples who became disciples of Christ, who had been disciples of John the Baptist, they became the nucleus and the founders of what? Of the Christian church. They were the remnant that founded the Christian church. But they were, first of all, drawn out by John the Baptist. Now let's go to our last example. We studied the prophecy of the 2300 days, right? The 2300 days are the larger prophecy and the 70 weeks are the first part of the 2300 days. Is that clear in your mind? So are, is the prophecy of the 2300 days divided into two parts? Absolutely. Now, the interesting thing is that Daniel not only gave the prophecy of the 70 weeks, which applied to the literal Jewish nation, but he also spoke about the 2300 days that would be fulfilled way down the course of Christian history. Let's read that prophecy as it's found in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14. And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Question. To whom is God giving this message? To Daniel. Right? Was Daniel a prophet? Yes, he was. Is God connecting with the message a time prophecy? Yes. Is it a message of judgment? We've studied that the cleansing of the sanctuary refers to what? Refers to the beginning of the judgment in the heavenly sanctuary. Was this message of judgment for the days of Daniel? Absolutely not. Notice Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4 and then we'll read verse 9. 
Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, and verse 9, and we'll actually go also to verse 13. God says to Daniel, he gave him this time period, the 2300 days, and the cleansing of the sanctuary will take place, which is the beginning of the judgment. And then he says to Daniel, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. So, is this book for the days of Daniel? No, it's sealed until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Notice verse 9. And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till when? Till the time of the end. And then verse 13. But you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. So this message was not present truth in the days of Daniel. Now here's the million dollar question. Would we expect at the end of the 2300 days, God to raise up a prophet that will proclaim the same message that Daniel proclaimed and make it present truth for his or her day and age? Yes or no? Yes, it's because the way that God operates. At the end of the 2300 days, we would expect God also to raise up a prophet that would explain that the prophecy of the 2300 days had come to its what? To its end. And explain this prophet, this prophecy, explicitly. I'd like to say that leading up to the year 1844, as we've studied before, God raised up an interdenominational and intercontinental movement known as the Great Second Advent Awakening, also known as the Millerite Movement. Do you know what was the central verse that they preached leading up to October 22, 1844? Unto 2300 days, and the sanctuary shall be what? Shall be cleansed. When are the 2300 days fulfilled? They're fulfilled in 1844. Would you expect a movement to arise that would proclaim that the 2300 days were about to come to an end? Absolutely. Because that is the way that God operated in every single case. Now, William Miller, listen carefully, William Miller did not fully understand one thing. He did not understand the event that was going to take place. Was he correct as to the timing of the event? He was. Was he wrong about the event? Yes. Now, before you're too, too hard on him, you need to remember that John the Baptist, who, who, who was the prophet that arose at the end of the 70 weeks, was in the same boat. Because he did not understand either. It was afterwards, after the disappointment, at the triumphal entry, that the disciples further stood, studied and understood. And Peter, on the day of Pentecost, God's prophet explained what had happened. Are you with me or not? William Miller and the Millerites, they had the timing right, but they had the event wrong. But after the disappointment, specifically in December of 1844, God raised up a woman named Ellen White. And do you know what the burden of Ellen White was? If you read her early writings, her burden was to explain what happened on October 22, 1844. Before she talked about health, before she talked about church organization, before she talked about education, before she talked about all of these things that she wrote about proliferously, 
Her main point at the very beginning, after the disappointment, was to explain what had happened on October 22nd, 1844. Her early visions have that specific purpose, and you can read them in the book Early Writings. Now let me ask you, why would she focus on this specific point? There's so many things that she could have written about, and she could have talked about. Why the 2300 days? Because she was the prophet that made present truth what Daniel spoke about. Are you understanding me or not? Now, what if Ellen White had talked about many other things? Maybe she talked about the Trinity or about health or about, uh, you know, the importance of establishing an educational system or so on. You know, those would be beautiful and wonderful truths, but they would not make the 2300-day prophecy present truth. She had to address the same issue, the identical issue that Daniel had addressed. Are you with me or not? And that's exactly what she did. Now, listen carefully. Ellen White gathered a small remnant. In fact, her first, first publication was a word to the little flock scattered abroad. And in that booklet, she tries to explain what happened in 1844 and the reason for the great disappointment. Now, do you know that New England, where this movement primarily took place, uh, there were many religious movements at this time. That's why New England was known as the Burned Over District. <laughs> because they had so many different religious movements. For example, let me mention some of those movements that arose in that same area. Mormonism, with its prophet Joseph Smith. Christian science, with its prophetess, Mary Baker Eddy. Theosophy, New Age theology, Helena Blavatsky. The Baha'i faith originated at that time with its prophet, Abdu'l-Baha. Spiritualism originated in that same general area, the Fox Sisters and Andrew Jackson Davis. Pentecostalism had its origin with a woman named Margaret, Margaret MacDonald. The Jehovah's Witnesses within that time frame had their origin. Futuristic interpretation of Bible prophecy had its origin then with John Nelson Darby and Edward Irving. Evolutionism had its origin in that time frame. Marxism, which is the philosophy of communism, had its origin during that time frame. What do you suppose the devil was trying to do? With so many religious movements rising in the same general geographical area, People would wonder, where is the truth? Where shall we turn? Do you know how you can know where the truth is? None of those that I mentioned addressed unto 2300 days and the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Only Ellen White and William Miller addressed unto 2300 days and the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Would you expect that to happen at the end of the 2300 days? in harmony with God's mode of operation. Absolutely. And you can check it out in history. Now, there are different attitudes towards Ellen White. There are those who openly attack her ministry and writings. And I say basically, those who attack the writings of Ellen White, either they haven't read the writings of Ellen White, or they read them with an agenda. Every prophet in the Bible was hated by the people to whom the prophet was sent. So if Ellen White is disliked in many circles, I would say she was probably a true prophet. 
Because Jesus said that the prophets who were light were false prophets. Because prophets tell the truth and people can't handle the truth. There are other people who ignore Ellen White by not reading her counsels. They're not benefited. There are others that try to undermine Ellen White by selective use of Ellen White when it's convenient for them to use her. And there are people who use Ellen White to hit people over the head. And that's why many people don't want anything to do with her. And then there are those people who love, read, and obey the counsels that God has given through her. Allow me to say, Ellen White does not say anything weird or wacky or off the wall. Her counsels are magnificent. They deal with many different areas. Health, education, church organization, theology, pious living. Just read for yourself. You'll be amazed at how God used this remarkable woman to share the truth of these last days. Thank God for this wonderful gift. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.